Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The preschool to podcast pipeline. Yeah, that's what we need to be talking about here. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lynn, Jerusalem Temsis, and we are out of the time machine. We did pick up an interesting historical white paper on our way back from the vortex that we will talk to you about later. But in August, The Weeds is going to take a look at some topics in education, education policy, and we're starting, uh, because you have to start somewhere, at the beginning of life with preschool. So I tried to get my son, who is a graduate of the District of Columbia's two-year public preschool system that is a, a model for progressives in the nation, to come and be a guest on The Weeds and tell us what it's all about. But he says that this podcast is boring, and he refused to participate. So we're just going to have to talk based on our policy judgment. To give this some structure, there are a lot of things that people might call school or preschool or something like that. But in a policy sense, there is an idea that you see in New York City, you see it in Tennessee, you see it for two years rather than one in D.C. I think Oklahoma also has a has a preschool program. And this is the idea that we should start school rather than daycare with four-year-olds or perhaps even, as in D.C., with three-year-olds rather than with five-year-olds in kindergarten. And part of the Biden administration's families plan, or possibly it's rebranded as human infrastructure, is federal money for doing this. It's something that has become a sort of sexier topic in the post-No Child Left Behind kind of landscape, as we talked about in the time machine. I think there's been some disillusionment with the idea that a kind of pure metrics and accountability system is going to drive huge improvements in the education system. So this other idea that people have is like, well, you got to start sooner. And I should say it's true from from observing my son compared to what I did when I was three and four years old. They had them do a lot of, it sounds funny talking about three-year-olds, honestly, but like academic-y kind of stuff, like teaching them about what the letters are and what the numbers are. They teach them, um, like, they call it book sense. So it's like the kids don't know how to read, right? But they, like, teach them how to hold a book, like how to have it right side up teach them that in English, words go from left to right, and you read the left page and then the right page. So they're trying to do this like pre-literacy work. And the idea is that it will help kids, especially kids from disadvantaged backgrounds, learn faster. And I guess my read of the research is that in the short term, at least, this clearly does seem to work. Yeah, I think one of the things that I didn't realize for a while is just how mixed the literature on preschools is. And part of that is because you're measuring a bunch of different things. Like in D.C., you have tens of thousands of dollars being spent per pupil, essentially. You know, you can have something like that or you can have something that's extremely small and like well-designed research and you're paying teachers, you know, really good salaries. So you're drawing from a really good talent pool. Or you can have what's essentially just like a daycare, which is just like one person with like 40 kids in a room and they're just making sure the kid stays alive during the day. And the research like is super mixed because you're trying to compare all these different things. A lot of the really good studies that showed benefits are from like 30 or 40 years ago. And, you know, there's still been good stuff recently, too. But you know, there's also been a couple of 
studies that show that you can actually have bad daycare can actually make your kid worse off. There was like a study in Quebec in like 2015 that showed that, you know, you give parents uh, cheap daycare and the kids actually had some short term harms in following. And there's also another study in Kentucky that showed the same thing a few years ago. So clearly there's this question of like, what are the trade-offs here and what are you comparing it against? And also like, what kind of program do you think you're actually going to be designing if you create a universal pre-K program? Like, is it going to be like this high quality top-notch program that everyone can access and there's 20 kids per classroom? Or is it more likely that like if different states are designing it and they want to cut costs that you're essentially just putting your kid in a substandard daycare? And then there's the question of like, is that worth it then? Yeah, I mean, the existential question of what makes a preschool is, I think, especially relevant right now for a couple of reasons that have less to do with any policy proposals floating around than just the COVID and post paren question mark, close paren, post COVID experience. And those are one that like a lot of parents have now had the experience of like 18 months of doing the keep kids alive function of schooling themselves and also doing a lot of the kind of facilitation work of setting up Zoom school at very least, which, you know, in a lot of cases has led to parents kind of having to do a lot of the work of educating their own children themselves. And that's on the one hand, I think, led to a certain appreciation of just how important having kids in school is, which is separate from the kind of ongoing school reopening debate that has created a certain pressure, even like the epidemiological question of when is it safe to reopen schools aside, a certain pressure to like getting kids in school is the most important thing. And it's so much better than Zoom school that the question of is it really better to have anything out of the house than to be in the house for the youngest kids that we'd be talking about is a really salient one and one that should be getting raised more as we kind of look toward the post-COVID future. The other reason that I think this is super relevant is that there's the labor force that you have staffing these schools is going to be drawn out of the same labor force we currently have, which is a fairly shorthanded one. And without kind of getting into bigger questions of the value of care work and the question of whether a preschool teacher is more of a care worker or more of, you know, an education worker, it's worth pointing out that all the debates we have in K through 12 over teacher quality, the more schoolish we make preschools, the higher salience those debates are. And so the question of expanding that workforce becomes much more relevant. That's actually, I think, a sort of key question floating around here when we talk about, like, what are we trying to do? Because I think the most promising studies of preschools show benefits of essentially highly skilled preschool workforces, right? So, you know, some of these are like these old pilot programs from Perry Preschool. Uh, but I mean, again, like in D.C., we have scaled up over time preschools that, you know, the teachers are graduates of selective colleges. Most often they are paid uh, not like astronomically high salaries for the universe, but like much higher salaries than workers at daycare centers because they're in the Washington Teachers Union and also because D.C. has, I believe, the most generous teacher compensation of any school district in America, at least as as starting salaries. Um, So you get, I think, some real benefits from that, particularly for kids from marginalized backgrounds. They are being supervised by people who themselves are very well educated. It's not just like, well, you learn stuff in college, but like they have a vision as to like what the like high class life track in America is. And they can do something you can't like substitute for a parent's love, but the teachers have knowledge and savvy that some of the children's parents may not have, right? So it's like an additive dynamic where you get something in school that's different from what you get at home. You get something at home that's different from what you get at school. One city can do that if they are willing to spend a lot of money. And like one foundation can definitely do that at one school. But if what you're thinking is that this is an alternative to the hard task of like systematically improving the quality of public schools, it turns out to like not really be an alternative to that. Because when you're talking about hiring 
thousands and thousands of reasonably well-paid, highly trained graduates of selective colleges to go teach four-year-olds, right? It's like the same problem just reiterates itself. Like, where do you find these people? When you launch the pilot program, a handful of people who are really interested in this, like self-select into doing the work, when you try to scale it up, massively. And it's like, okay, here's going to be, you know, our preschool in Boise. It's like, well, like who works there? Like, how did you build that system? And not to say it's impossible, but it's no different from like the challenge of having the most amazing sixth grade teachers in the world in every single classroom in America. Like it's a really big country. People don't want to spend infinite sums of money on any of this. And so then if you're not going to do that, you're in a world of providing a daycare function, which is like important to people's families and important to people's lives. But then you get into a question of like, well, what's the best way to actually design a subsidy for that, right? Like if your goal is to just help families out with the fact that it's burdensome and expensive to like need to keep young children, it's like not obvious that launching a bunch of preschools is the best way to do that right? As opposed to meet some ambitious educational goals. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's super interesting in kind of the pessimistic study that show that the benefits to daycare kind of dissipate after a few years is that it's pretty clear, like, you know, these kids are getting something while they're in preschool and maybe they get to kindergarten and they're ahead of their peers. But like if they end up going to shitty schools right afterwards and like their kindergarten is geared towards making sure that kids who didn't go to preschool can catch up and they're not actually building on the knowledge they gained or whatever, like executive function or reasoning or whatever skills that they got in preschool are actually being built on, then you actually end up getting a lot of stagnation. And I think it's important to like kind of trace back why everyone was so like obsessed with preschool because we could start seeing a bunch of research in like the late 20th century into the 2010s or whatever that like we don't really know what we can do for teenagers who have been living under like terrible educational systems and trauma for a long time but maybe if we can get to like really young kids before they've experienced a lot of bad stuff we can just fix it before it gets really bad and so kind of the impetus is like this idea that like you know just like this one-stop shop We'll make sure that you have some good experiences at three or four, and then you should be fine later in life. I mean, I think there's like two ways we've moved away from that. One is like some people are like, we need to go even younger, like zero to three, like prenatal stuff is really important. Like all that stuff is is correct. But clearly what we're seeing from the research is that nothing can substitute for actually making sure that people have long-term benefits coming to them from their either the educational system or other places. And I think this question of like, if a kid is living in poverty, them having gone to pre-K that was really good from three to four might help some people. But if you're five years old and then you're going to a shitty school and like you're living in traumatic conditions where there's violence in your neighborhood all the time, like we can't expect those effects to remain persistent without other interventions as well. We might want to take a break because I think that there's something in there that like might be worth drilling down into pretty granularly. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. 
They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions. Best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So the more that we talk about this, the more convinced I am that like we kind of need to disaggregate the bundle of what pre-K is supposed to do for kids and for communities. Because when we talk about things like the educational effects dissipating, like you can kind of build a plausible mental model of, well, the skills that you are learning in pre-K are skills that are primarily useful in kindergarten. So you'll be more ready for like kindergarten, first grade. But then by the time that you're going to, you know, third, fourth, fifth grade, and you're trying to build on skills that you learned in K through two, then if you've been in a bad K through two system, it's going to collapse on itself. It's solid foundation, crappy first floor. But some of the skills that Matt was talking about initially in terms of the pre-literacy stuff are as much about kind of the, I guess, habitus of what it is like to be in school, which is, I think, separate from any particular skills. Can you maybe explain habitus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, I mean, the kind of like body sense of here is what it's like to hold a book. Here is what it is like to like sit down and read. Here is what it is like to be in a classroom setting and be working independently, here's what it is like to be in a classroom setting and be listening to the teacher while they talk. Like, I went to a Montessori preschool and kindergarten for that matter. And like, the hardest thing for me going to a standard public school in first grade was that there wasn't as much independently structured learning time, which part of which was the transition to first grade, but part of which was that I was in a Montessori setting. So there's that. There's also this kind of what Matt was talking about a little bit later in the first segment about how to succeed soft skills. The fact that highly educated teachers are likely to have triumphed in the system as we've set it up right now, and so are both modeling and teaching kids, here are the things you need to do to continue to succeed in this system that we've built and like have a good shot at, you know, a pedigreed college and improve your earnings in later life. Those are things that it's plausible that they don't dissipate as easily, or at least like they are not any less relevant in fourth grade than they were in first and second grade. And it's not exactly like seven and eight year old kids are naturally inclined to sit down and be quiet for long periods of time. And like, you know, that not having learned those skills would ultimately even out. And it's also not like there are other structures built into K through 12 that are going to teach the soft success skills. So, you know, I think that when we talk about the differences between pre-K and childcare, or when we talk about the differences between high and low quality pre-K, like, which of these functions are we trying to serve with a high quality pre-K? I think, you know, it seems like, Matt, your sense at least is that the DC system has really succeeded in the like quasi-academic skills or the soft life success skills that aren't going to be measured on like tests, but that might in fact be more durable than just knowing how to read a little bit sooner. Well, I mean, it has built it, you know, so DC is also the only jurisdiction in America whose NAEP reading scores for eighth graders have continued to rise after the great national plateauing. So, I mean, I do think, you know, the theory of it is that this translates into, you know, more academic success. Here's where I think the problem is, right? That if you sort of read the literature, it ping pongs a little bit between oh my God, you get these amazing benefits from preschool, to then like, no, 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 the benefits phase out, to, well, no, but the benefits don't phase out if you have curriculum alignment, if you have high-quality middle schools. So what you're left with, it's not, I think, a bad finding for preschool, but I think it's that the hope was that preschool was going to be like magic, right? Because there are things that are like this, right? We know with foreign languages, right? That if you take a little kid, I know a little girl and she speaks French, she speaks Bulgarian, she speaks English, and she's six, right? And she could just like dunk on you, a grown up, in terms of her foreign language capacities. And you just can't do that. Like only a genius can do that as an adult, but like everybody can do it as a little kid, right? So if it was really important to America, for more people to speak Bulgarian, 
then a heavy investment in early childhood education would like clearly put us like on the rocket ship to Bulgarian linguistic competence in a way that futzing around with high schools won't, right? And you could imagine like really redesigning foreign language education along those principles, but because of English's privileged position in the world, learning foreign languages like actually isn't that important to Americans. Uh, but learning reading and math is well it's a big claim i mean there 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 are also documented benefits that you know if just learning multiple languages can just help with cognitive reasoning in other ways and also lots of spanish speakers in america <laughs> sure foreign language competence is not a standard by which we have agreed we are going to evaluate the quality of education right exactly the problem with preschool it seems to me is that there isn't a strong evidence that it is especially important to like literacy outcomes to educate three and four year olds. It's not that it doesn't help, right? But it's that like even like really skilled six year olds, like reading and writing competency is like quite bad, right? And like you need to continue to level them up as they become seven, eight, nine. It's like it's a really long race. And kids whose parents themselves are rich and educated. If you hit a bump in the road, those parents like make the kids navigate around it, you know, and kids who come from, you know, who have unstable situations or, you know, whose parents are maybe not that focused on this, like they have more problems. Like if there's any kind of breakdown anywhere on the school pathway, you can get problems and there's no four-year-old magic that like immunizes kids against those kind of breakdowns later in the process, which isn't to say it's not worth doing, but you have to think about, like, it's not really an alternative to addressing anything else that seems hard. And I do think that that's a lot of what people are looking for, that preschool was supposed to be relief from the, like, education reform wars. And I don't think it can provide that. Right. Like whatever it is that like will make everybody's middle schools really good, like you would still have to do that if you wanted to have much, much better educational outcomes in the United States. Preschool could help, but like it's one year and you're talking about four year olds and it still matters a lot what happens with the bigger kids. I think one of the things that these programs unambiguously have done, though, is increasing the labor force participation rate for women. And it's like very indirect here, right, as a outcome. But what you end up having in D.C. is like you get like a 12 percentage point increase in the labor force participation rate for women. It's like 10 percentage points can be attributed to the preschool program, according to like this CAP study by Rashid Malik. And so you have like a situation here where it's kind of like a roundabout way of, you know, obviously there's poverty decreases and like cash increases at home for like people who are able to now work when they weren't able to before. And there's just like the secondary question, too, of just like, you know, it is a good thing if women who wanted to work are now able to enter the workforce. It's like a good thing if they have money that they're bringing in on their own, because we know that in households where only one earner is bringing in money and it's the man that often that creates power differentials within the relationship. And, you know, that has unseen impacts potentially on children in the home where like little girls and little boys see gender roles being reinforced as like mom doesn't work and dad does. And that can have a lot of different problems. And of course, in really bad situations like with domestic violence or things like that, women are not able to leave if they don't have access to an income outside the home. But one of the things that I really struggle with this, though, is like there's also like a lot of survey data that shows that like not universally, but on average, women are preferring to stay home rather than work these like shitty low wage jobs that are like they also could be experiencing sexual harassment there and they could also be experiencing like labor <laughs> rights violations there. And so it's like a really difficult problem to solve because there are societal issues with just saying that like only men work or predominantly men are working. And there are also societal issues if you're basically depriving people of the choice to like stay home with their kids, especially if the option is not sending their kid to like a really highly specialized preschool. It's like sending their kid to like kind of like a daycare and like obviously a loving parent could like do that better. Yeah, I mean, this kind of gets us back to the labor force question too, right? Because what you're saying is that universal provision of pre-K would allow a cohort of people who would otherwise be in like kind of flexible jobs and who have the ability to not work if they, you know, like who who are in two income households and have the ability and one income is sufficient that they can live off it um, as long as 
you know, the other parent is staying at home. Like you're talking about a certain stratum of class um, that in which people are likely to be like highly educated, but not necessarily money driven, which is to say you're taking a cohort of people out of the workforce who would be prime candidates for the kind of jobs that you're going to be opening up with universal pre-K. Well, I think that's a little oversimplified, right? That I mean, if you look at the range of childcare arrangements that people have, right? It's not dichotomous between mom stays at home with the kids and kids enroll in center-based childcare, right? And if families have more unrestricted money, I think some of that money goes to reduced work hours, you know, so that people spend more time with their own children. But some of it goes to compensating, you know, informal family arrangements, right? Like maybe there is one person in the community and she takes care of her own kids and her sister's kids and also one friend, right? But now with more cash on hand, we're able to provide like financial compensation so that she can go do that, right? And you start to get into the world. I mean, this we're, we're more talking daycare than preschool, but there's like a fuzzy line between something we feel really happy about as like community-based childcare, right? And something we feel like really bleak about, like unregulated home-based operators, right? And, you know, but, but like these are like both phrases that you will hear out there. And it's like not always totally obvious, like where one starts and where one begins, you know, depending on like which communities we are talking about and what's going on exactly inside of them. But what I do think is clear is that just giving people money is more um, cost effective in terms of solving the need for somebody to be watching the kids. Because in many cases, there are opportunities available that are much, much cheaper than the kind of center-based childcare that upscale professionals usually enroll their kids in. I mean, obviously, like, fancy people buy expensive stuff. And so they will either enroll their kid in a childcare center that's very expensive, or they will have a nanny or a nanny share that's very expensive, or they will have, like, a college-educated parent dropping out of the workforce where the opportunity cost is very, very high. But like working class people do have cheaper solutions along all of those dimensions. And if you give them money, like they can find those things versus if you try to level everybody up to like what's the bougiest childcare solution out there. I mean, there's like egalitarian reasons to do that, but you're talking about a very expensive proposition. And I don't think that the research has really like interrogated the question of whether formal childcare centers are in fact like a lot better than like let your neighbor who's an experienced parent herself watch the kids. I mean, not to say that they aren't, but that like preschool has been the subject of a lot of evaluation pro and con, uh, whereas like the commercial daycare sector, it's just kind of like doing its thing and like now asking for more subsidies. And that's why I think it's like really important to like drill down into what you're trying to do with these programs, because I agree if it's just poverty reduction that we're trying to get at, if that's like the goal. And we know that if you reduce poverty, probably the class achievement gap and therefore the racial achievement gap will close somewhat. Then yeah, you could just give people money. But if in doing that, you also care about the increased burden on women that childcare provides and like, yeah, I mean, you giving people a bunch of money often can compensate women for staying home, but that does not solve for the larger societal problem of just, you know, gendered workplaces where that can actually translate down to younger people and have them believe that they themselves are like making this choice not freely. So like, I, th I think it's like, we have to be very clear here. Like, is it really a free choice that like women are, are disproportionately saying they'd rather stay home? Or is that just like the best option they see available after like decades of being told that's what they should be doing? And so like, I don't know if the government policy should be trying to like suss this out when we know that poverty reduction can improve outcomes for a lot of people. And like, we should just let people do what they say they want to do. But I do think it's important to like put out that like, like, that's like a massive benefit if a bunch of women are able to have incomes of their own and also their kids are like safe and like in daycare. And like a lot of these working class women are not people who are 
able to just like provide a Montessori or like whatever type homeschooling environment for their kids, they're likely having to take care of a bunch of different things and also stress about work. Potentially they're working a job and they're taking care of their kids. They're bringing their kids to work. So I just think there's a lot of heterogeneity around what kind of experiences are happening at the lower end of the income ladder. And it is clear that really specialized, good programs are providing a lot of benefits. And also a lot of these benefits potentially are not even being measured by the studies. There is kind of one other, you know, when we're talking about the very abstract, like what messages are getting sent to the kids in these programs based on their own household formation, like the other thing that reminds me of is the question of what universal pre-K would do for for retaining like income diversity in public schooling, right? Because it does seem that the parents that are affluent enough to afford like enrolling their kids in private pre-K, they already have the experience of school shopping. They've already learned the lesson at a very young age that like when their kids are at a very young age, that the public school system is not giving them what they want in an educational experience. And so they have to turn to alternatives. And so I do kind of wonder, you know, and Matt, obviously you have like substantial lived experience with this one. What you think, if any effect, having had everyone have the ability to start in a public school pre-K program, you know, would have on the continued kind of health of the school system. So, I mean, DCPS did something interesting that I think other cities should think about, at least. So they set like a very high bar for what universal preschool was going to look like. And that meant that they did not try to roll it out very quickly. Right. I mean, there was a deliberate trade-off. They wanted to maintain the standard, and that meant that it was going to take them a number of years to increase the capacity to where they wanted it to be. And they did it not exclusively through the DCPS schools, but through the DCPS schools and the DC charter school system, which has its own authorizing board and a reasonably high standard for what you can do. So they did not subsidize private operators, and they did not attempt to make preschool universally available in the short term. So then they had to start somewhere, and they basically started from the poorest neighborhoods moving out. But they did not means test the program. It's geographically based, like regular public schooling, but they basically rolled it out. So school starts at age four in the poor neighborhoods and at age five in the rich ones and then three, you know, and and it expands outwards. So this winds up having an impact sort of along the gentrification frontier where if you are living in Shaw or Columbia Heights or Logan Circle or the eastern rim of Capitol Hill neighborhood, and, you know, you are the kind of, I don't know, like yuppie gentrifier who's there and like you're having kids and you're like, uh, do we have to move to Cleveland Park for the schools? Like, what are we going to do? You got the opportunity to enroll in public school when your kid was three or four, while the people in Cleveland Park and Tenleytown didn't necessarily. So this got a lot of richer, whiter families enrolling their kids in public schools, and it created a situation where racially integrated neighborhoods that used to have very segregated schools now have integrated schools as well as as integrated neighborhoods. And you can see the Urban Institute has this um, thing where you can track the demographic evolution uh, of different schools in America. And the U.S. public school system is very, very, very highly segregated. And these schools, like in the gentrifying neighborhoods of Washington, D.C., are a big exception to that, um, where white enrollment has gone up because the schools themselves were under-enrolled. This has not been displacement of anybody from the schools. They're just less under-enrolled than they used to be. So like in my kid's school, like white enrollment is up, black enrollment is up, Latino enrollment is flat. And like, that's the story. So people sometimes will say, well, we really ought to do something to tackle school segregation. Uh, But then they often don't seem to like have any things they want to do to tackle school segregation. Is that desegregation persistent? Like what happens when they go to elementary school, middle school? Well, that's the question, right? I mean, like, I don't think we know because they're not separated. Like, you know, you go from pre-K three into kindergarten, so on and so forth. So right now in D.C., the elementary schools have gotten a lot less segregated, but the middle schools and high schools are still super segregated. So I don't know what the like next stage equivalent of that is. I'm also not 100% sure like what the cost-benefit 
on it all is. Like the way DC has done this has been very expensive, right? They are taking both a high-end model of what preschool should be, and they are providing it to everybody. Because ultimately, it does roll out. It's not a targeted program for the neediest families. So it's a very high-cost version of preschool. And while it has improved the, like, measurable learning outcomes in DCPS, it's not like it's made DCPS, like, in the top 10% or even top half of American public school systems. It's taken what used to be regarded as like one of the worst anywhere, and it's like swimming up toward mediocrity at great expense. DC is pretty affluent area, but also very unequal. So like doing expensive public sector undertakings that promote equality seems like a reasonable kind of thing to do. But I'm just never sure like how generalizable any of that is to, you know, a poorer city like Baltimore or just a place where like the politics is not going to support public investment on that kind of scale. And you maybe need to look at things that have like, you know, higher cost benefit, right? I mean, you know, if you're trying to get like, I'm in Texas now, if you're trying to get Texas to agree to spend money on stuff, you know, that's going to be a hard sell. And like, you want to make sure you're really getting bang for your buck. Although San Antonio is another example of a place that did a big preschool investment. This used to be Julian Castro's claim to fame. It seems to have worked out, you know, somewhat well there. But I mean, again, it hasn't like turned San Antonio into like the hot place that everybody wants their kids to go to school in. And they still have these like little exclaves where like rich white neighborhoods have formed their own towns so they don't need to participate in the same San Antonio school system. This is like a super long-winded way of saying that like, I just think in general that like preschool doesn't, it's not that it doesn't work, but that it doesn't like evade the big, difficult structural questions in education, it just sort of creates another venue in which you can try to address them. And sometimes that can be creative, right? Because by saying, hey, like you can enroll your four-year-old at the local neighborhood school, like that really does get people to like give something a try, right? But I don't know, like the forces that lead to school segregation are really big. And this is just not that big of a lever. On the segregation piece, it's not like there's some other thing that's been done somewhere that is like, of an overwhelming success that I would point to instead. Well, let's not turn this into a housing <laughs> podcast. <laughs> no, we never talk about housing. Housing segregation in everything. <laughs> but I mean, I think this kind of can bring us to, to Biden's plan a little bit because I don't know how, how salient this still is, but he has he had a plan to um, expand preschool to all three and four-year-olds nationally and also at the same time do free community, tuition-free community college. And what's interesting and what I didn't know before researching for this show is that it also includes like teacher scholarships for people who are getting a bachelor's degree or another credential to become an educator. And so like it seems like there's this like a lot of what we're talking about here is just if we are serious about having this really expensive preschool option, we need to be creating the labor force that could support that. And I think what's strange, like, you know, we've kind of pish posh between like, you know, the worst kind of outcome, which is like this is just like a, a worse form of daycare versus like, you know, the best form of where it's like, you know, highly educated elite, uh, you know, Montessori type, whatever preschool. But like, it feels like the actual worst case scenario is like this middle case where we're like spending a lot of money, not actually doing the really great curriculum. The school class, the classrooms are kind of overcrowded and, you know, there's not these segregational benefits because you're having uh, these segregational benefits because you're not actually making sure everyone's kind of in the same system. It seems like you either have to go all in or you have to accept that what you're actually trying to solve for can be solved for in other ways. So I don't know. I don't know if people have thoughts on this Biden program. I know, Matt, you talked about it with Dana Goldstein the other week. I mean, the, the main thing I would say about the Biden program is that there's like a million like details TK in this, right? In how does the federal government interface with states and then like school districts and then individual schools? Like it's a it's not a bad idea, but like in a world where Biden has like 11 different policy initiatives and moderate senators probably aren't going to go for all of it, right? And some stuff needs to be edited. 
Like, I think the worst possible version of the Biden family's plan would be to take everything he proposed and then just shrink it all by 30 percent to make it fit under the the budget headroom. And like, I might say that this preschool idea is like not quite ready for prime time. Like if you had to cut something that like Biden's um, like housing proposal is like well thought out. I think, and they kick the tires on it. The child tax credit is like clearly there. Changing the Affordable Care Act subsidies is like Democrats have like the deepest fucking bench of like nerdy healthcare people in the universe, and they can really do that. Like the thing about preschools, just schools in general, is like school districts run the schools. Like the president and Congress can't, through their like puppetry, like make school districts implement high-quality preschools, I think. I don't think they have the kind of, like, granular insight to sort of make it happen. I hope some states do this. I mean, I also think under his matching funds proposal, this is what Dana said, like, I think a lot of states are just going to say no to this money. Um, We've seen with Medicaid, where it's like a 90% federal match, still a bunch of states have said no. Uh, Biden's proposing, like, 50, you know, going, like, halvesies with states on preschool rollout. So, like, I don't know. I just, like, I don't see Alabama doing that necessarily. They say that it's like, well, this is support from Republicans and Democrats alike. But I think that turns out to be like one governor of Oklahoma 15 years ago is is the sign that there's bipartisan support. And as we know with many things, like, issues become polarized over time. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know. Let's take a break and let's re-enter the time machine briefly. So back in time, we did find some research on an education expansion in Depression-era Norway. This is The Making of Social Democracy, the Economic and Electoral Consequences of Norway's 1936 Folk School Reform. It's a blockbuster paper by Darren Asimoglu, the the famous MIT economist, uh, plus uh, two Finnish guys, uh, Tuomas Pekarinen and Matis I can't say Finnish names, uh, plus Kjell Salvanes, I think, from Norway. Apparently, I am not that well-versed in Norwegian history. But the first ever Norwegian Labor Party government comes to power in 1936. Uh, This is like their first left government. And one of the things they do is they put a lot of money into rural education, uh, which was called folk schools. And so they increase the, like, quantity of schooling. They increase the pay of the teachers. It's like a big deal. And so this study shows that, you know, it works. The cohorts that are impacted by the reforms become better educated. They have higher labor income over the longer term. And they also show that the cohorts that benefited from this reform become much more likely to vote for the Labor Party down the road. And that this is not, you know, that if you if you do the statistics, that this is not just a mechanical impact of the education itself. It's like some kind of a... You know, it's like a Norwegian version of like FDR brought electricity to my town. So now I'm a Democrat, you know, into the into the 60s and 70s. That there's like a whole generation of rural Norwegian social Democrats sort of brought up as a result of this Norwegian New Deal. I don't know. I mean, it's, I think, an important part of understanding the history of the 20th century is that the Circumstances of the 1930s allowed for a lot of dramatic shifts in electoral politics in a lot of different countries. And what happens to have happened during that period often has sort of long-lasting legacies. Obviously, we know of many countries in Europe where something a little darker than a big rollout of rural schooling happened in the 1930s. Uh, But in Norway, that's what they did, right? The Social Democrats came to power, they built all these schools, and then people decided that Social Democrats are great. Yeah, this is one of those where like the top line finding is stated so kind of clearly that that like my natural reaction was like, yeah, I'm sure there's stuff that they didn't control for, you know, that there are other kind of possible explanations here. And they're they're pretty good at laying out, you know, if it were this alternative explanation, here's what we would look for. And we looked for it and we didn't find it. And the thing that I I found personally most persuasive in that kind of section of the like, you know, working through the various versions of the null hypothesis was that they 
a lot of the data that they're using is a survey, the first post-election survey in Norway. It wasn't conducted until 1957, which is not super helpful in evaluating, you know, the reasons that people were changing their vote in the mid-1930s. But, you know, it does speak to a certain amount of durability over time. And so they're looking at the cohorts, both of people who would have had kids go through, you know, who would have had kids benefit from the boost to schooling and the generation of kids themselves. And there is a pronounced difference in the ways in which like rural and urban people in those cohorts respond to questions about whether the Labour Party is like demonstrated an ability to keep its promises and to govern. And I am also not super well versed in Norwegian history. So it's possible that there is some intervening historical factor that they conveniently left out in the paper that would explain that difference. But it does speak pretty precisely to this is the population that would have benefited from this program that like is very visible in people's lives. And lo and behold, we do see that they have have a higher sense of efficacy of government even 20 years down the road. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting is that the the authors can't really or or don't really parse between whether or not people were just thankful for the policy change or whether they were like reevaluating their previous conception of the Labour Party as being like incompetent. So it's not like clear exactly what mechanism they're following. Maybe they're like, oh, cool, they can do stuff now. Or it's like, oh, I'm so thankful. So I'm going to reward you with my vote, which I think is like a very interesting school of like political thought. But just to like really hammer home like how big of a deal this change was in like 1935, like urban areas had like 211 days of schooling, whereas rural areas had like only 89. And so like bringing that up, to par was like a massive difference in people's lives. So it's not like some small like, you know, education policy tinkering that people were like, oh, cool. Thank you for doing that. This was a major difference in how children and parents and families were like living in these places. And I think also what's interesting to me about this is because, you know, we're like living in the time of polarization, I guess. And it's one of the things I think Ezra Klein talks about a lot is just this idea that it's really hard for voters to evaluate their political parties based on what they've done because often the political parties can't get done their top priorities so you're evaluating them on like random small stuff or you're probably not evaluating them on policy changes at all or you're just upset because they didn't do anything after they promised you a bunch of big stuff and it's interesting because it's hard to imagine right now the idea of in the united states like you know even in some european countries i'm not super familiar with what's going on in norway i have to admit but it's really hard to imagine someone sweeping to power this kind of new party and then getting to enact this massive policy agenda that reframes the entirety of how people do education. And that feels like a lot healthier of an electorate. So it's cool, but I'm not sure how instructive it is for current political parties. The one thing I will say about electoral health in particular is, you know, in the U.S. context, there's like a strong positive correlation between education level and voter turnout. You know, you could see that also becoming part of the mechanism here where like, okay, obviously, if you're going to have a more educated electorate, they're going to turn out at higher rates. And so maybe the people who are most affected by that are going to change the vote share. But it turns out that Norway, even before the harmonization of schooling, had a pretty, you know, had had like super high voter turnout. So we are talking about like an electorate that is in that one extremely important respect, different from the United States. And so might have, you know, once you have an electorate, once you have a citizenry that is already overwhelmingly likely to like vote, they may be thinking more actively, you know, about politics, following it more closely and might be making their decisions in different ways. I'm not like it's also possible that that's not the case. It's just a good reason to, you know, like this isn't necessarily like the stars aligned and a system much like our own was suddenly able to do a lot. And look how powerful it was. It was a system that already probably wasn't our own, was able to do a lot and people responded to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think to the extent that this has any, you know, real implications for thinking about America, right, you would more likely look to state governments, just because like Norway is small. And as Jerusalem was saying, like, national political parties are never empowered to really make changes on, on this scale in the kind of legislative arena. It's interesting that I can't think of anything comparable to this happening in state government in the United States in like, the past 30 years, right? Where like a party takes over and they have some like signature idea and it's like really distinctive. And then people are all like, well, let's see how that worked out, 
right? In whatever place. And then it, what's, you know, one thing that's, that's just striking about this is that like the outcomes were very different after they did this, right? Like the days in schooling changed a lot. The literacy rates went up quite a bit, right? We have this very ferocious politics in America. You know, people are very emotionally engaged with it. But like, I, I just like, I can't think of an example of like a party sweeping into power and making like really big changes that touch everybody's lives in the way that this would have touched the lives of like every family in rural Norway. And it just, I don't know, it kind of made me think that we're like we're playing on a smaller field than I think we we sometimes think we are here. I don't know. Like I remember when Obama was president for eight years. It was a big deal. We we wrote a lot of takes about it. But like I don't think any aspect of American life was like changed nearly as dramatically as we're talking about here with with the Norwegians. Um, and you know I don't know. I think Medicaid expansion has a shot in some of these states in the ACA. Right. But this is the thing about about, you know, the ability, the like the magnitude of the change and going back to, you know, the dear departed Ezra Klein's point about the ability to evaluate about people's ability to evaluate whether the party in power is done it right. Like the states where Medicaid expansion makes the biggest difference are the states where there are most likely to be political obstacles to Medicaid expansion that made it so that someone who wasn't paying super close attention to politics may not have been super sure exactly how big that change was supposed to be and who was responsible. We did have some good white papers a little while ago about Medicaid expansion increasing voter turnout, you know, which is a little bit along these lines. I mean, it's a smaller swath of the population, but like the people who did get like newly enrolled in government services, it had an impact on their lives, but it also did have an impact on their political behavior. And also there's this like during the Obama years, this technocratic push to like kind of hide what the policy you were doing was and like kind of like just sneak it in and hope that like that would help people actually just like be okay with the policy passing like there's all this like obviously drama around the ACA and how it was written in a way to make sure that people didn't actually know the implications of it or what a big deal it was and there are all these like threats of like calling it elitist but you know I I think if you do a politics like that then you're not going to have this kind of benefit where everyone associates the policy benefits with you and your administration and of course we're seeing that now with Biden uh, we saw it with Trump where, you know, he's trying to put his like name on all the checks. And of course, Biden now is trying to make clearly during the recovery process was trying to pursue policies where, you know, you got a direct benefit. You got like $1,400 in your checking account if for uh, most uh, people. So it really does feel like that kind of sense of we should be very clear about which policies are ours becomes a difficult consideration when you don't want to be drawing too much attention to it, but you also want to be rewarded by it from voters. So thank you, Jerusalem. Thanks as always to our sponsors. I also want to thank and welcome Ness Smith-Savadov, who is joining us as a new engineer and producer on the show, as well as Eric Janakis, our longtime producer now, and the Weasel will be back on Friday.